Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And when he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring him a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees, walking. After that he put his hands again upon his eyes, and made him to look up, and he was restored, and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any man in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and by the way he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world, and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my works in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As we study through the book of Mark, we remember that Mark is teaching us who Jesus is by showing us what Jesus did. And at the end of Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus healing a deaf man who cannot speak. In the first part of our passage tonight, or today in verses 22 through 26, Jesus heals a blind man. Mark is demonstrating to us who Jesus is by showing us what Jesus did. And over the course of this study, we have talked about the love of Christ. We've talked about the wisdom of Christ. We've talked about the compassion of Christ. We've Talk about how Christ is driven by salvation, by redemption, by restoration. But in the passages that I've mentioned, we see the healing of a blind man, the healing of a man who cannot speak, the healing of a man who is deaf. Mark is demonstrating to us who Jesus is by showing us what he did. Those healings are significant because in recording those healings, Mark showed how Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly the prophecies of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, the Bible says, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be oppressed, the Ears of the death unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness waters break out and streams in the desert. 
Isaiah prophesied during a time that Israel was looking at going into captivity. The nation was in decline. The nation was falling apart. Enemies were taking them over. And this happened because Israel had turned their backs on God, had entered into sin, had been committing idolatry, and the more God punished them, the more they did it. You ever have a kid that the more you spank him, the more defiant he is? You ever have that kid? I'm not going to say anything because, you know, my kids are like, Dad, we don't want to be in the sermons. Okay. I'll be compassionate. But have you ever dealt with obstinate defiance disorder, right? That was Israel. And so Isaiah is telling Israel, you need to repent and God will restore you. But if you don't repent and God knows that you're not going to repent, here's what's coming. But in Isaiah 35, Isaiah prophesied that God, even after they had been through everything they had gone through, even after they had suffered the, re the results and the effects of their sin and had everything taken from them, that God himself would come back to them, that redemption would still come, that everything that is happening is happening for the redemption of God's people. That's a biblical concept. God allows everything in your life to draw you closer to him and to draw you into his presence. And so in Isaiah 35, Isaiah the prophet is promising the Messiah. He's promising the Christ. He's going to come. He's going to redeem the nation. He is going to judge your enemies. He is going to set you free. And how will you know it's him? How will you know who it is? You'll know it because the blind will see. Those that cannot talk will be able to talk. The King James Bible says the dumb will sing. I could make some pop music jokes, but I won't. And the deaf will hear. That's how you'll know. And these people are following Jesus. They're following Jesus, and Jesus is preaching to them and teaching them the wisdom of God in the Old Testament, redemption, repentance, salvation, hope. And as he's doing this, he's healing. He's healing the blind. He's healing the dumb, the, the, those, the mutes, those who cannot speak. He's healing the deaf. Mm -hmm. He's healing the handicapped, the crippled, the lame. Mm -hmm. He's doing this all in front of everybody. He's doing these miracles. Yes. He's identifying who he is as the Messiah. The people had been praying that Messiah would come, that the Christ would come, that the Deliverer would come. And here he is doing everything that the Bible said that he would do. And they were missing it. They were missing it because he didn't come the way that they thought he was going to come. They had their own preconceived notions. They're looking for a knight in shining armor who's going to ride in and run off the Romans and make the crops grow and the stock market rally and everybody's going to be happy and prosperous. But Christ came for the repentance and the redemption of his people. The blessing that Christ brings is spiritual, not material. But because the people were looking for a material blessing, they were looking for a material deliverer, they were consumed with the things of this world, they totally missed it. Mark is telling us who Jesus is by showing us what Jesus did. And he brings it all to a point here in chapter 8 by asking the $64,000 question. 
Actually, Jesus asked the $64,000 question. Who do men say that I am? Who am I? Who is Jesus? Who is he? 2,000 years later, we still talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is he a great teacher, a wise man, a compassionate individual, a great leader, the happy hippie fella that's on the t-shirt with the two thumbs up, the long-haired guy from the uh, Renaissance paintings? Who is Jesus? That's the question. And in this passage, we see the people's answer. We see Peter's answer. We see Jesus' answer. And then we see the responses. So let's look at the people's answer. In verse 27, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. Now the miracles of Jesus clearly demonstrated who he is. I mean, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, and he said, are you the one that we're looking for? Do we look for another? What did Jesus say? He said, go back and tell John what you see. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak. You know, the lame are, are, are healed. John would know the answer to that question based on those signs. The people had seen Jesus do these miraculous healings. No doubt as they studied in synagogue and in, in Sunday school and growing up, they, they, they studied about the Messiah coming and all these healings taking place. Who he is is clearly being demonstrated. Yes. Yet the people were so steeped in tradition and their own preconceived notions that they could not conceive of a carpenter from Nazareth being the Messiah. So they didn't know who he was. And so they reason to themselves, based on their own preconceived notions and based on their own ideas, he must be the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Which is impossible. That's not how reincarnation works. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't exist. But if it were, that's not how it would work. Um, he must be the reincarnation of John the Baptist. He must be the reincarnation of Elijah, of Elias, of Elisha, of one of the Old Testament prophets. He, he must be one of these guys. Maybe he's just a... A great teacher. They were so steeped in their tradition and preconceived notions that they didn't recognize him. And so when they were asked who Jesus is, that was the answer they gave. Yes. Totally missed the point of who he is, of who he was. You talk to people today about Jesus. What are they going to tell you about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who they tell you Jesus is will be based on their own preconceived notions. Maybe I'm basing him on my preconceived notions. Maybe you're basing him on yours. Who is Jesus? Is he a wise man? A great teacher? A gentle giant? Santa Claus type figure, you know? A humble servant? The happy hippie fellow in the pictures who doubles as a babysitter. You ever notice he's always got the kids on his lap in some of these pictures? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that who Jesus is? Is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? 
would Jesus have gotten on the Trump train? Who is Jesus? Who is he? My point to asking all these questions is on what do you base your understanding of Jesus? The pictures, the Renaissance paintings, what you want Jesus to be, what you hope Jesus will be, what others say about Jesus, or is your understanding of Jesus based on the Bible? Because we have a tendency to come up with our own concept of who Jesus is. And the farther you get from the Bible, the more like yourself Jesus becomes. And then the more like yourself Jesus becomes in your mind, the more you're like Jesus. And the more you're like Jesus, the better you are. And then you walk into that leaven of the Pharisees, when we talked about last week, where you start to thinking that, you know, you're, you're better than somebody else because you're closer to Jesus. But who's, where's your understanding of Jesus come from? What I have learned in my study of the Bible is that Jesus is a lot more loving and forgiving than I originally thought and than I originally appreciated. And he's definitely a lot more loving and forgiving than I am. And the love of Christ is unfathomable. And I'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But there have been times, recent times, that I've been going through life dealing with some things, thinking, I'm not, I shouldn't have to deal with this stuff. This is not fair. I deserve better. And Jesus says, tell me about it. Have y'all seen that picture of Mel Gibson sitting next to the actor who played Jesus in uh, The Passion of the Christ? Is after he, they put the makeup on him to show the suffering. So, you know, you got this actor that's got the, 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 the bloody look, you know, because he, you know, it's, the, it's the scene with the cross. And so Mel Gibson, the director, is talking to him in this picture. And the caption reads, how I look when I start telling Jesus about my problems. Right? Well, who's, where's our understanding of Jesus come from? Now, that's the world's answer. The world comes up with its own notion of Jesus based on their preconceived notion or based on what they want him to be. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Jew and you don't want to recognize Christ as Messiah, you'll make peace with your Christian friends by saying he was a great prophet and a great teacher. If you're a Muslim, you'll recognize his teachings, but he wasn't the Christ. If uh, you're an atheist, you may say that he didn't exist at all, or if he did, he was a minor figure in history. But who is Jesus? Jesus said, who do men say that I am? They gave him the answers. Jesus then said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, thou art the Christ. And we cross-reference this with Luke chapter 22 and with Matthew chapter 16. And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter knew that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, the son of the living God, the the Christ that Israel was promised, the Christ that Israel looked forward to, the deliverer that they prayed for to deliver them from the captivity and the bondage that they were in at the hands of the Romans. Peter knew who Jesus was. He is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. Jesus is not a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Peter knew John. Jesus was no John. And John was no Jesus. He knew they were different. 
Peter knew that Jesus was not the reincarnation of an Old Testament prophet. Peter knew that Jesus was not just a mere man, a mere mortal. He knew he's the Christ, the son of the living God. The Christ that Israel had been praying for. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter also confesses that Jesus is the son of God. And that's a big deal. That is a big deal because, again, you have promises from the Old Testament that are being fulfilled right before his eyes. Because in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says, Behold, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Mm -hmm. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew interpreted for us, meaning God with us. So Peter understood as he walked alongside Christ that he is walking alongside the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Promised One of Israel, the Son of God, God in flesh, he is walking next to divinity here. He is, special, he is privileged to be there. And he recognizes that. And he confesses that. Jesus, God in flesh. God in flesh. One of the things I struggle to wrap my mind around is Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And he's 100% man, but he's also 100% God. God the Father took on a human form and became Christ. But Christ prayed to the Father. If y'all can figure out how all that works, let me know. I'll sit down and we'll put your name on the sign and I'll learn from you. I say that jokingly, but I would like to know. Um, But now think about that. John chapter 1 tells us the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word. And then we find out that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How much did God love you? God loved you enough. He wanted to live with you. Live among you. Live like you. God has always wanted to dwell among us. To dwell with his people. To live with his people. To commune and to walk with and to fellowship with his people. He's wanted that from the very beginning. You go back to the Garden of Eden. What did he do? He came down and he walked and talked with Adam and Eve. When God came down in chapter three, after, in Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't come down and say, "I sense a disturbance in the force." No, He came down for His afternoon walk with Adam, and Adam's hiding, and God says, "Adam, where are you?" He wanted to be with Adam. In the book of Exodus. When God ordered the construction of the tabernacle, what was the point of that? That he could dwell among his people. It was the same thing with the temple. That he could dwell among his people. And finally, when the time was right, he brought forth Christ. He became Christ. He became his own only begotten son so he could dwell among his people. And when he did that, he didn't go to the high society of Jerusalem and hang out at the country club. He went and hung out with fishermen and carpenters and the the common folk. He he wants to dwell with us. That's how much God loves you. 
He came to dwell with us, to be with us, to teach and minister to us. The Bible also tells us that he experienced everything we experienced so that he can understand, he can empathize. And therefore, we know that he hears and cares about our prayers when we pray to him. That's Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus, God in flesh, shows God's love and that he sent his only begotten son, that he went to the cross to die for us. That shows the power and authority of Christ. For Peter, Jesus was the Christ, the Savior. Is Jesus your Christ? Is he your deliverer? Is he your Savior? Is your hope in him? Do you hope in him? Is your expectation of going to heaven bound up in him and the fact that he died for your sins on the cross? Are you kind of hoping that he don't notice? Maybe I can sneak in. Bill and Ted's bogus journey. They mugged some wise men and snuck into heaven. That's not how you get in. Uh-uh. Comical moment in the movie, but totally theologically incorrect. No, you know, you shouldn't be hoping that God doesn't notice, trying to avoid God, trying to come up with a way to please God, because that's already happened. You just place your faith in Christ. Yes. Is he your Savior? Is he your Christ? Is he the one in whom you place your hope? Or is your hope in yourself? How good you can be, how much you can straighten it up, your works. Do you understand that? Do you understand that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? He loved you so much he sent his only begotten Son to die for you that if you believe in him you shall have eternal life. Good job. The people's answer, Peter's answer, Jesus has an answer in this. We look in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus further explained that not only was he the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, but that he would go to the cross and he would lay down his life to pay for the sins of the world and rise again to conquer the grave. He starts talking about being betrayed. He starts talking about being arrested. He starts talking about being turned over to the Romans, being crucified. And he's talking about this openly. He's saying this in front of strangers, in front of visitors, in front of... Peter's like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This ain't polling well, man. All right, now, we've got to win this election. <laughs> Jesus says, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You love the things of the world and not the things of God. We'll get into that in a second. But he's got to go. He's got to die. He's got to be killed. And he's got to rise again after three days. Jesus discussed his death, the reason for his death, to pay for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, rising again to conquer the grave. Folks, this is the gospel. Yes. You hear people talk about the gospel. Oh, at my church, we preach the gospel. We are a gospel-centered church. I like to listen to southern gospel music. Well, that's an example. I don't do that a lot. Um, I, I like it, but I'm more of a contemporary Christian music. Never mind. Um, the gospel. You hear that word around church all the time, don't you? Yeah. Gospel. Gospel. The solid gospel church. You know? True gospel. Yeah. This gospel. That gospel. What is the gospel? Yeah. What is the gospel? Tell it. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scripture 
The central message of the Bible is the gospel. And the central message of the Bible is how God redeemed us from our sins through Jesus Christ dying for our sins on the cross. And the hope of eternal life that we have because Christ rose from the grave. That's the central message of the gospel. Amen. I was broadcasting football in East Texas. Halftime show would bring somebody in to interview them. And I've got this prominent youth director from a prominent church in the area. And he's on the show with me. And we're talking about this big youth rally they've got coming up. And, and I mean, I'm, and of course, I'm a Baptist preacher doing a halftime show and a football broadcast. You know, in my mind, thousands of people are listening. But we were down 35 to nothing, so maybe not. But anyway, and I've got, I've got the opportunity here. We're going to put the gospel out over high school football. And so I asked this youth director. I said, I think this is a softball question. What's the central message of the Bible? Um, um, <laughs> love. So, you know, you have people teaching the kids that don't understand the central message of the Bible is redemption through Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the central message. It's the primary reason Jesus came to earth. It's what God wants us to know. Everything you need to know about God is contained in the gospel. His death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 1.16 says that it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. In Romans 1.17 it says that therein is the righteousness of God revealed. What that means is God's power to redeem you from sin and death is revealed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God's righteousness and his love for you is revealed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What do you need to know about God? Everything you need to know about God, you can learn from the gospel. That God loved you, Jesus loved you enough to come down to earth, live your experience, go through those hardships, minister to us, heal us, deal with menially earthly issues before he went to the cross and endured the punishment for your sins and for my sins. Amen. And in during that punishment, he gave his life yes. and was buried. But on the third day, you want to talk power of God, he raised up. He conquered the grave. This stone that it takes ten men to cover the grave was rolled away. The Roman officer, the guard that was there, I mean, these are, these are highly armed, highly skilled combat individuals, are overcome. And Jesus walked out of that grave. Yes. He rose to be at the right hand of the throne of God, where the Bible tells us that he is able to save us to the utmost that come to God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. It's God's power, his righteousness, his love. And it is faith and trust in that that saves. You trust Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you trust him to receive you because he paid for your sins on the cross. The Bible teaches that you're saved. Amen. Sometimes we express this with a prayer. Sometimes we express this with a confession. Sometimes we express this with a statement. Sometimes we express this by what we do. But it's that faith inside that saves. Yes. We have a hymn of invitation at the end of church services every now and then. Somebody will be moved by the Holy Spirit to turn from their sins and trust Christ as their Savior. So they'll 
step out into the aisle and they'll walk down here to talk to you. I'm going to tell you, the change in their heart has already happened before they get down the aisle to talk to me. I'm just there to say, you're saved. You don't even need me for that. But i got to say something. You don't walk down the aisle. But that's where we are. You know, that's what it is. That's Jesus answering. The question now becomes, what's our response to that? Because we're going to see two responses here in the scriptures. you got Peter. Now, Peter, he's walking next to the Son of God. He knows who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the, the Deliverer. He is God in flesh, the divine nature. He's got it all. And we're going to march into Jerusalem. We're going to run them Romans and them Pharisees out of there. We're going to crown Jesus king. He's going to restore the kingdom. The crops will grow. The stock market will rally. The military will be strong, and we'll have the kingdom. Jesus will be king. And in Peter's mind, you know, because he's kind of the leader of the disciples, he'll be vice king. Maybe not. Maybe that's a little too ambitious. Chief of staff. <laughs> Peter, as Brother Jim mentioned in Sunday school this morning, thought he was somebody. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. James and John, their mama comes to them because she sees the situation developing with Peter. James and John, their mom goes to Jesus and says, hey, make these guys your right-hand men. And Jesus said, oh, if only you knew the qualifications for that job. And this is what Peter's thinking. This is what the disciples are thinking. Because as they're going into Jerusalem on the day of Passover, and they, Jesus has rode in Palm Sunday on the donkey. And James and John's mom goes to Jesus and says, make it to where my son sit on your right and your left hand. Put them at the top of the list, Jesus. And now, if you're one of the other disciples, what are you thinking? I see what you're playing. That's what that is. All the other disciples are mad at James and John. Now they're arguing. They're on their way to the upper room. They're arguing. And what does Jesus do when he gets them to the upper room? Washes their feet. Teaches humility and service. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? The problem is their minds are on earthly things. That's they're, right. they're thinking about the earthly kingdom. They're thinking about the throne, the throne room. Am I Secretary of Defense or am I Secretary of State? Am I Chief of Staff or am I Press Secretary? What's my job here? Do I get to live in the White House or do I get a flash apartment, you know, up top story of a major apartment building somewhere? What do I get? And that's what my, Peter's mind was on. So Jesus says, the Son of Man must be handed over and killed and rise again the third day. Peter says, this is not polling well. People don't understand this. This is not exactly the picture of the victorious coup that we're trying to plan here. This ain't working, Jesus. And Jesus says, rebukes him, says, get thee behind me, Satan. That name Satan, by the way, means opponent. Mm-hmm. Right now, Peter's playing for the wrong team, and he don't even realize it. Because you savor not the things of God, but the things of men. And unfortunately, that's a common response today. That people don't savor the things of God, the things of eternal value. They savor the things of men. And we can be real religious about that. We can be real spiritual about that. We want the, 
we want the bigger house, the bigger car, the bigger paycheck, the retirement account, the vacation in the tropics. Uh, I'm reading about that every Sunday. <laughs> no, we gotta we gotta go witness to people. Mm-hmm. We gotta spread the gospel. Amen. You know why? Because we need more people to come to church. The budget needs it. <laughs> right? You, you think I'm being silly? I actually sat in a business meeting one night and this man stood up and said, we need to start preaching the gospel in this community. If we don't, our church won't grow. Not growing church is a good thing. But what's our motivation for spreading the gospel? If it's to have a bigger church, to have the Brownwood Bulletin do a story on the fastest growing church in Brown County. That's the wrong reason, Miss Vivian. That's right. That's savoring the things of the. Uh, that's savoring the things of man. Mm-hmm. If we want to grow a big church and reach a lot of people, so that we can get articles published in Christianity Today, so I can get a book deal. That's, that's things of the earth. That's, that's things right. of man. The wrong motivation. Our preacher preaches the gospel too much. <laughs> There's one for you. Um. Preacher, maybe we should move beyond the gospel and into the deeper things of Scripture. What's deeper than that? What's deeper? You know, it's, those are responses of men. I had a conversation with a man about the timing of the rapture. One of my favorite topics to not talk about. Because I usually find I'm in disagreement with everybody. Um, <laughs> But this guy starts educating me. He goes, you don't understand. He starts telling me about this little backstory to the Bible. There's, there's this pattern that you can't see unless you're really, you really understand what the Bible's really saying. This guy is excited because he knows a truth that nobody else knows. <laughs> I'm smarter. That's things, of, that's things of man. That's right. All right. We can get caught up with that. That's one response to the gospel. To respond to it with the things of man, either you're going to reject it because it gets in the way of what you really want in life, or you're going to use it to manipulate it into something that you do want in life. Something earthly. That's one response. The other response is the response that Jesus told us to have in verse 34. He said, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who is Jesus to tell us to take up our cross? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> he kind of did that himself, didn't he? Carried his cross up that hill to be crucified on it. He took up his cross. He wants us to take up our cross. Leland, does this mean I have to die for the gospel? Well, you live in Texas, so the probability of that happening is rather small. Yeah. If you're in India, Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. Africa, the Middle East, your probability of losing your life for the gospel is a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. What can we take from that? The idea of being a martyr in Brownwood, Texas is very remote. Yeah. So how do we lose our life for the gospel? Basically... You make the decision that what you want in life are the things of eternal importance and not the things of this temporary earthly importance. That's right. That your life is no longer driven by paychecks and 
houses and cars and vacations and prestige and the next conquest and the next promotion. And your life is driven by what can you do to honor God and to bring glory to his kingdom. When your mind is on eternal things, you have lost your life for the gospel's sake. Yep. But when you get to heaven, you get it all back. Yeah. But if you're driven by, and I like houses, I like cars, I own some, you know, if you're driven by houses and cars and accomplishments and trophies and championships and all this other stuff, when you enter into the next life, all of that's gone. That's right. A lot of it's gone this life. Mm-hmm. Who's the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys? You can say it. It's okay. I'm a Cowboys fan. Who's the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> Matt Prescott. It's okay. It's okay to me. You're a fan. Who was the quarterback before Dak? Who was the quarterback before Romo? He was so bad you remember him. <laughs> Who was before Quincy? Yeah, okay, so Troy and was before him. You missed Vinny Testaverde and Jerry Bledsoe. And those guys are legends, right? They, they kind of came to Dallas in their retirement years. Bill Parcells, y'all remember him when he coached? Bill Parcells went to a nursing home up in New England and picked those guys up. Who was before Aikman? Now, I know we're going back 30 years now. Danny White. He was one of them. Before Danny White was... Wow! That's amazing. The San Francisco 40, not now. I've made my point, though. You've had to think about it. The reason I picked the Cowboys, besides the fact that I am a fan, is that they're America's team. Whoever is quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys is going to be one of the most talked about quarterbacks in the nation, whether they're doing well or not. Quincy Carter could barely make it in Arena League in Abilene, but when he was on the Cowboys, ESPN talked about him all the time. They talked about how bad he was, but they talked about him. We don't remember half of these guys now. We don't. That's life. When we get to heaven, you think we're talking about Quincy Carter? Maybe if he's there. Quincy, how's it going? But, you know, all that stuff, it burns off. It goes away. So the, the instruction that Jesus gives us is to savor the things of God. It's okay to like Cowboys. Thanks for, thanks for playing. Uh, it, it's, it's okay to like the Cowboys, to like the Rangers, to like the Astros, to talk about them, to make jokes about Hosea being the official minor prophet of the Texas Rangers. That was a great um, you know, t- talking about these things, it's okay. God wants us to enjoy life. Just don't let that be what drives you. Have your mind on eternal things. Know Jesus. Know who he is. Know what he did for you. Trust him. And as you trust him, set your sight on heavenly things. Trust the Lord. Trust the gospel. Be heavenly minded.